0: Hi everyone, I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. Today, as ALS Awareness Month winds down in the United States and gets ready to kick off here in Canada, my husband Chris and I will talk with the one and only Steve Gleason. I don't think I have ever been more grateful for a conversation than I am for the one you are about to hear. Steve, a former NFL safety for the New Orleans Saints, has been living with ALS for 11 years. He is perhaps the most well-known person alive today with this disease, and his ability to transcend the physical circumstances of his life is nothing short of remarkable. Steve is 45 years old. He and his wife Michelle have been married for 14 years, and they live in New Orleans with their two children, Rivers, who is 10, and Gray, who is 3. I have some things to share on the logistics of this conversation, but first, a story about Major League Baseball executive Theo Epstein and how Chris and Steve came to be friends. Chris knows Theo from his days as a baseball reporter. Chris covered the Red Sox for the Boston Globe during the time Theo was the team's general manager. But until January 2020, the two hadn't talked for years. The last time they had spoken was in 2007, when they ran into each other at a hotel in Denver, when Chris was working for the Minnesota Wild, and the team happened to be staying in the same hotel as the Red Sox during the 2007 World Series. Fast forward to January 15, 2020. We had just gone public with Chris's diagnosis one month before. And his phone vibrated with a text message. It was from Theo. It read, Chris, it's been a while since we connected, but I wanted to reach out to let you know I've been thinking about you every day since your wife announced your diagnosis. In following your story, my thoughts of concern and sadness have been eclipsed by feelings of admiration for how you and your wife are handling this challenge and of hope for what lies ahead for you and the world in this battle with ALS. As I am texting this, I am on a flight back to Chicago from D.C., where I was honored earlier today to watch Steve Gleason receive his Congressional Gold Medal, and then to help him celebrate it. He is a Cubs fan, and we've become close these last many years. He is a remarkable person, probably the single most remarkable I've ever met. I hope to introduce you to him someday, but until then, I just wanted to share some observations about Steve. Steve turns every day into an opportunity to explore, to learn, to teach, to be courageous, to be vulnerable. You know that optimistic, open, grateful perspective that helps us connect with others and allows us to give and get the most out of life? Yeah, I know, I know. That outlook is not exactly my calling card. I try, I swear. Well, Steve somehow lives in that headspace, every single day. I know he has uncommon resources and a great team around him, but I'm telling you, he just lives the fullest life growing as a person daily and lifting up everyone in his orbit. I am not sharing this because it's supposed to be a challenge or a lesson or some impossible standard none of us could ever live up to regardless of our situation. Rather, I'm sharing it because I don't think any of that is a response to ALS. It's just who he is. It's who he was before the diagnosis, and it's who he is now, 10 years later. He remains utterly unchanged. Steve's greatest motivation is his son Rivers, a pretty darn good young ball player, and now his infant daughter Gray. I can tell from reading your wife's blog that you have the same motivation in your wonderful family. And, like Steve, from what I remember about you and all I've read, you have the benefit of being a pretty darn great person yourself, with a life full of meaning, rewarding passions, and people who love you. You don't need Steve, and certainly not me, to tell you that that, too, does not change with a diagnosis. It's really incredible to hear about the results you've experienced from this new drug. Keep up the fight, and keep blazing new trails, Chris. I'm very proud of you. If I can ever do anything for you, or if you just want to catch up, please don't hesitate to reach out. And regardless, just know that you have a crusty old baseball executive as part of your team rooting you on from afar. I am excited about all that lies ahead for you and look forward to seeing you raise your congressional gold medal someday, or at least a Stanley Cup. With admiration and support, Theo. Theo did introduce Chris and Steve, virtually at least, and the two of them have messaged consistently since then. Steve is a teacher for Chris, a friend. He's a teacher for our family, and it's not hyperbole to say that his life and his example make him a teacher for the world. Recently, Chris has been feeling quite down about the things he's lost, his inability to smile or look happy or excited or even angry or frustrated, and he's been scared of the losses to come. He was being pulled under. As I so often do, I told him to message Steve. He did, and Chris told me it would be okay for me to share what Steve wrote to him. It's harder when people are losing their abilities, Steve wrote. Question for poignancy. How will your kids and wife feel when you're dead? Whether that happens today or in 37 years. I ask myself this a lot when I am aware of struggle in my mind. Your experience with your face is an opportunity for liberation that I can't comprehensively understand. All I have is my smile. Our presence is enough, Chris. Your presence is enough. I love you. It's Thankful Thursday, baby. Your homework is to send me eight things you're grateful for from today only. To be alive doesn't count real experiences from today. I love you. Chris sent me the screenshot of this message. I asked him what he thought. He wrote back that he's right. Chris has never joined me for a conversation with someone else on the podcast before, but I wanted him here for this one. I think it's so important to hear the voices of two people, two husbands and dads talking openly and vulnerably about living with this disease. Chris and I obviously have different perspectives and are living two very different parts of this one story of ours. He is the husband and the father with ALS, and I am the wife of a man with this disease and mother whose children are grappling with it as well. And so you'll hear both of us ask Steve our own questions from our own perspectives. Some notes on how this episode came together as they relate to how Steve communicates. You've heard me talk on this podcast before about tracheostomies a tracheostomy is a procedure needed if an ALS patient can no longer breathe with other assistive devices and wishes to stay alive. It means a ventilator 24-7, and it renders a patient voiceless if they had any voice left at the point of surgery, though many do not. Steve had a tracheostomy three years after his ALS diagnosis, so that's eight years ago now. Since then, he's required 24-7 care. ALS is a strange and insidious disease that attacks in different, inexplicable ways. Unlike Chris, who has suffered total atrophy of his facial muscles and his lips but remains strong elsewhere in his body three years since his diagnosis— Steve cannot move any part of his body except for his eyes and facial muscles. He can smile, raise his eyebrows, blink, and even wink. He can answer yes or no questions quickly this way. Raising his eyebrows repeatedly is yes, blinking repeatedly is no, and a wink means right on. All other communication is done using technology called eye gaze. Many years ago, before Steve lost his voice, he did something called voice banking. Chris has done this as well. In voice banking, you record yourself saying many, many different statements, sentences, and words. Those recordings are then turned into a digital voice, your own version of Siri or Alexa, if you will. Steve uses a tablet set up in his eyeline to look at the letters, words, or phrases he wants to say, and then the tablet uses his digital voice to generate his speech. This is a taxing, time-consuming way to communicate that can be riddled with technical glitches, but it is the most efficient option by far. Steve can type 12 to 15 words per minute with his eyes. In the weeks before we recorded this, Chris and I wrote up our questions, three from me and three from Chris, and sent them to Steve so he could prepare his answers. This conversation is about 45 minutes long, with Chris and I talking for many of those minutes, of course. It took Steve... 15 to 20 hours to answer our six questions, plus another two to three hours of editing the audio over the course of many days in order to rest his eyes because of how fatigued they get from long spans of typing. Let me just say that one more time again. Steve spent 15 to 20 hours typing the answers to these questions. Let that sink in. What this means is that this episode is unlike any others, in that it played out like a script. Chris and I read the questions in the order we had sent them to Steve, and Steve had his answers queued up in that same order. As I said, communicating this way is not without challenges. At the very start of our Zoom, Steve's eye gaze system stopped working, and he had to restart it. During that time, he communicated with his caretaker, Kyle, who was there throughout the conversation, via something called the Becker Communication System, which breaks down the letters of the alphabet into six squares, and a patient moves their eyes to indicate the chosen letter. Communication via eye gaze is a slow process, and as such, there were many long pauses in our conversation. The beauty of editing means I could take these out for the listener, but I wanted to explain what this was actually like so people can understand this type of communication. This is a conversation with one man who cannot speak from his own mouth at all because of ALS, and another whose speech has been negatively impacted by the same disease. It's a conversation about acceptance and surrender and walking side by side with our fear. It's about marriage and parenting and how we see ourselves. This conversation is a gift. Steve is a gift. Do yourself a favor and treat it as such. Don't listen in the car while you run errands or while you are distracted. Because Steve's voice is digital and Chris's voice is changed, you might need to pay more attention to really hear what they're saying. Please do so. Put in your earbuds and put them on noise canceling. Find a sunny spot to sit, go for a walk, and really listen. One of the most valuable things about the way we had to do this conversation is that when Steve was talking, I didn't have to be thinking about what I was going to ask next. I already knew what I was going to ask next. And so I was able to just sit and listen, to immerse myself in the present. It was remarkable for me and for Chris. And I hope it is for you as well. This is Steve's story. A quick reminder that Sorry I'm Sad is truly a labor of love for me. From finding guests and researching topics, to preparing interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself, a great deal of time, energy, and thought go into each ad-free episode. If you value this podcast and want to support it, please go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow, that's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W, to become a member for as little as $5 a month. Your contribution will help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and give you access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community.
1: Steve! <laughs> Good smile. <laughs> it's thankful Thursday,
2: baby. how is the audio
3: it's good excellent yep
2: great I think I'm ready we shall see
3: so we are so excited to be talking to you today uh it seems crazy that we haven't actually talked to you before because in our family we talk about you and your family all the time, so much so that I just pulled this down from the shelf right above our, uh, right above the computer here. This hangs in our office and we look at it every single day. A friend made this for me on Christmas a couple of years. So this is our most spoken quote in our family for sure, which is um, what Steve said in his movie It's not gonna be easy, it's but it's gonna Rossi. be awesome. <laughs> Yeah. So we're gonna jump right in here. And I wanted to ask you that something, about something that you wrote on the 11th anniversary of your ALS diagnosis. You tweeted that you are grateful for ALS. And I think sometimes when people say things like that, uh, I often think, but really? <laughs> um, but I know when you say something like this, you really mean it in a different way, in a really like, hard-fought, well-explored, fundamental truth kind of way. Um, I know you really appreciate uh, Viktor Frankl, and I wanted to read something from his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote, we must never forget that we may also find meaning in life, even when confronted with a hopeless situation, when facing a fate that cannot be changed. For what then matters is to bear witness to the uniquely human potential at its best, which is to transform a personal tragedy into a triumph, to turn one's predicament into a human achievement. When we are no longer able to change a situation, just think of an incurable disease such as inoperable cancer, we are challenged to change ourselves. Before we did this, uh, you sent me some of the speeches you've given recently, and in one of them, you said, I'm here to share my story of being entirely broken by ALS, experiencing and facing the feelings of frustration and anxiety, loneliness, isolation. For me at that time, there was no escape. But in the midst of my suffering, my eyes were opening to reimagine possible and discover a path to an unknown beauty and peace. I live in a prison of a body. My life and my existence is so fragile, but this is not depressing for me. It energizes me. Um, You were also talking in that about this hospital bed moment that you had. And I wondered if you could share that moment and that experience and how it led you to this place of being energized by your life uh, rather than depressed by it, of how you found your way to being grateful for ALS.
2: Yeah, thanks again, y'all. And Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful to see your faces laugh. There's a beauty of being broken. I have the hospital bed moment here. Would you like me to read it? Or you could read it.
3: I'd love for you to read it if you can.
2: Yeah. ALS. Is a motor neuron disease that usually kills its victims in three years. I was diagnosed over 11 years ago in 2011. I like to say I'm eight years past my expiration date. <laughs> As the disease progressed over the next two years, I lost all ability to move or talk, and I was gradually losing the ability to breathe. My world which had once been a cosmos of strength, community, love, and curiosity, was becoming more isolated every day. Instead of sleeping in a king-sized bed next to my wife, Michelle, I slept alone in a tiny hospital bed, which had bars on all sides. This was the expert recommendation from doctors. My prison to sleep in. I'll never forget the first night in the hospital bed. I was staring at the ceiling with no ability to move or communicate. All I could do was moan like an unconscious zombie. I felt the cold rubber of the inflatable mattress below my fingers and legs. I was living a nightmare. My mind raced with thought. Who am I now? This pathetic body. Am I also pathetic? Is this what dying is like? I hope I can escape. How do I escape? There is no escape. Holy shit balls. There is no escape. There was only fear. Isolation, separation, loneliness. Staring into the darkness, my powerlessness was suffocating. I started openly weeping, without remorse, beyond thoughts in my mind. My arms and hands, unable to move, lay useless by my side. All I could do was feel gravity, hold the warm tears down the sides of my face. In the moment, lying in the cold and sterile bed with every ounce of grief, Pouring out of me, I experienced something of a transcendent moment. Something extraordinary. I looked up towards the ceiling and saw everything, all at once. This scene, the whole world, filled up my head, then my body. I somehow let go of myself. I lost myself. But this loss, this emptiness, was replaced with a vast fullness. This letting go brought peace and unknowable peace. As I recognized that I was more than the painful thoughts and emotions that passed through my mind, I had a clear understanding that these thoughts and emotions were not real. Miraculously, I accepted this reality. Instead of stark and terrible, it was just what it was, hoping was abandoned. I don't know where it came from, but through this grief, I started to feel a taste of relief. A transformation to a stable peace. Instead of resisting this fear, what if I chose instead to embrace it? When I felt fear, what if I welcomed it rather than resisted it? That night, something extraordinary happened. Something beyond anything I had previously known. A transformation to strength. There is no escape. If this is what dying is like, maybe escape is not the way. If this is my last breath, experience it fully. Let it be done to me. Just be with this tonight, as it is this moment of reality. This recognition and radical acceptance allowed me to survive the moment and the night. I transformed from isolated and afraid to personally resilient. I'm also happy to tell you through this process of acceptance and transforming, I was able to orchestrate a return to my king-sized bed in the next couple months. (laughs) Oh yeah, baby.
3: That's fantastic. I I think so much about the idea. And I think before Chris was diagnosed, I used to think that surrender was a word that meant weakness. And I have a totally different relationship with those words, acceptance and surrender now. Um, Just because I can relate to that feeling of like, how do I get out of this? How do I escape this? Like you said, and there's no escape. And so if there's no escape, like what's the choice, right? What do we do if there's no
1: escape? Well, Steve said to me, while ago that it was easier mentally, after he had lost everything, than it was to deal with the consistent, ever-present fear of what's next. Because I experienced that. There's the fear of what if, there's a fear of, oh my goodness, this is going on. Mm -hmm. And there is this peace after the fact, for example, this iron here, and don't think about it at all, because it's gone. and gone to through the fear and the loss and the mourning. Now, I deal with fear on this side. Mm-hmm. And I said to Steve recently that usually I can overpower that fear. Mm-hmm. And he said that that is not the right way to think about it, to recognize it, to accept it, to walk next to it. Mm-hmm. I do think that Steve was built for this in the way that he lived. And the fact that as a younger, physically healthy man, mm-hmm. he traveled the world. He read he wrote poetry. He was as unconventional and as free a spirit as could be. And I truly think, Steve, that unknowingly, you portrayed yourself to do that, to think that way, knowing that so few of us never could and never have. Mm-hmm.
2: You nailed it, my man. I'm here to be a great model. This is Fun Guys. Thanks again, Kelsey and Chris. Back to being grateful for this life with ALS, Kelsey. Here's how I view life. Life is bringing me exactly what I need to grow and to learn who I truly am the painful dramas and the impossible adversities of living with ALS. These are, as Victor Frank will talk, these are my opportunities to abandon my attachments, accept the circumstances of life, and transform myself. As I transform, I find an unknown peace. I experience true mental freedom, and I can be enormously more loving. Having this view of life, I can be with absolutely any circumstance life brings me. ALS has given me the opportunity to, quote-unquote, walk on water, to live impossible. So, even if it sounds crazy, yeah, when I hold this view, I'm enormously grateful for this circumstance. It's also absolutely critical to point out that none of this would be possible without the totally amazing and divine care crew I have. People like Kyle and a handful of others willing to help me walk on the water. They are here 24-7. I'm so grateful for them. More importantly than me living impossible, I can share my life. And my example with my family, you and Chris, this ALS community through the work that our foundation team please and does, and I can share this life with the world. The truth is, we all experience impossible moments, and we can all find peace and freedom and live impossible.
3: <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing that you've gotten to that place, and I think that we... Look at you, and it makes it feel—it makes it feel possible, right? Like that's
1: it does. But every single day, I look at you and think, Steve does impossible things every single second. Yeah. In the last two months, I'd say, at least, even since the new year, Steve's like my life coach. Steve <laughs> so up sense I was sitting down, yeah. and I get I wake up this morning, text in pictures and i think steve has a very finite amount of energy in his eyes Mm -hmm. in his body in his mind and yet he's giving that energy to me Mm -hmm. and to the world and for that see my gratitude and my capacity to deal with the day-to-day immense. yeah yeah it's
3: um When Chris is having a hard time, I just usually tell him to message you. (laughs) Okay. So in another recent speech that you gave, you said, I'm flourishing and my family, we are flourishing together. Flourishing is not a feeling. It's a fact. I loved that. Um, And a while ago, you also tweeted a screenshot of a message exchange uh, with your wife, Michelle. Michelle. As the wife of a person with ALS, I think lots about how this illness has impacted um, our marriage and how it will continue to. And um, I listened to a podcast that Michelle did with a friend a while back. And the friend had asked her, what does she miss most? And she said the thing that she misses most is just that easy back and forth flow of conversation, right? Like as we've already seen, um, it takes it takes time and technology and all sorts of things in order for you to, to, to communicate. Um, and I just wondered, um how your marriage has evolved through your illness and how you and Michelle stay connected now.
2: Well, there's Kels. I'm so grateful to you for being vulnerable and courageous enough to ask this.
1: Hmm.
2: It's not an easy question to answer only because I'm not sure if I'll be able to capture the darkness and light Michelle and I have experienced in the past decade here in one answer. Mm -hmm. Our 40th anniversary was this week. Mm -hmm. It's pretty fucking crazy and somewhat miraculous that we are still rolling. And it is possible that we are stronger than ever. Mm -hmm. We understand each other's pain and we are very compassionate to each other when we miss the mark. Mm -hmm. Also, this is a difficult question to answer because... If you have not been intimately exposed to the deep pain of life and marriage that couples experience in ALS, it is impossible to understand this existence. Mm -hmm. I think you have read our Live Impossible book proposal. It is pretty radical what has happened since we submitted that to potential publishers. In the proposal, we have an excerpt I wrote about meeting Michelle in 2004 at Jazz Fest. (laughs) Three years after the infamous Jazz Fest triathlon, I proposed to Michelle on the Magnolia Bridge. A year after that, we were married there on the bridge. It will forever be one of my most sacred spots. It's for another story, but over the next four years we would endure Hurricane Katrina. We explored some of the most remote places of the world together. We traveled to places like Chile, Easter Island, Greece, Indonesia, Nepal, New Zealand, and Australia, where we drove across the continent together. Much of those times, we were our only companions. We were the only song each other wanted to hear. It was a love of being with each other, nearly all the time, every day. This wasn't an immature puppy love. It was two humans enjoying each other's company. We were wholeness, and we each added to the other's wholeness. Mm. As with all things in life, the harmony of our love faded into discord. The wholeness was shattered by the first three years of the hurricane of ALS the melody of love turned into the discordant noises of shame, guilt, resentment, and fear. From the outside, I was no longer the boy Michelle fell in love with, but from my perspective, I was still the boy. It was agonizingly difficult for my mind to accept this new reality. During those difficult years, there were times that we talked about divorce or living separately. I'd say that the two aspects that saved our relationship were my learning to radically accept that our love was drastically different than before ALS. I had to die to everything that my ego identity resisted. There were nights of an unknown loneliness and warm tears flooding my eyes. There was no escape. I did Finally recognized that my suffering was only because of my inability to accept this reality. I finally chose to welcome this. The second aspect of relationship salvation is that we have learned to communicate with compassion for each other. Not always, obviously. We're not fully liberated. Michelle and I understand each of the other's pain. That understanding, really understanding another's perspective, in my view, is absolutely critical to communicating compassionately with others. I also see this understanding as the reason we can easily forgive each other. Michelle and I have had to completely rethink what wholeness in a relationship is, What love, selfless, without clinging or resistance? What real love is? We have evolved our relationship to the point where nearly everything has changed. The single thread remaining is the willingness to explore the physical world and the inner mental world within all of us. Mm -hmm. Somehow, desperately, willingly, resiliently, Miraculously, together we have washed ourselves of much of the dissonance, revealing the wholeness. We have been broken and shattered to the point where our only option was to let go, accept the reality of life's circumstances, to find the compassionate vibration, energy and light I know is within all of us. The music has evolved to a unique new frequency an entirely new wholeness. It continues. Whoa.
3: Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. I mean, I think, you know, I, I often look at what we've gone through and 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 Chris already mentioned this, like looking at you and looking at Michelle and saying, well, if they can do it, we can do it. And it's such an example because we haven't been to those depths that you guys had to go through in this disease, and already it can feel scary at times. Um, to feel like maybe you're you're going one way and I'm going the other in how we're dealing with things, um and it can feel scary <laughs> to be going in separate directions, right? Yeah. For
1: instance, in the fall, I was hospitalized with aspiration pneumonia, and when I got out, I was in Toronto, was on there, and I took her to dinner, and I couldn't eat. I couldn't talk over the din of the restaurant. And I was frustrated and exhibited that. And she felt upset that I was upset. And we felt that this was our first real attempt and at tear out since COVID. And COVID had taken away. This realization does really see something in my evening, in my speech. And moments like that, you think, about both of us being sideless. And in reality, it's not. Because I listened to you, and the depth and purity of that love and that relationship is astounding. Mm-hmm. No one's done the work you two have done. Mm-hmm. And no one's gotten through it with the perspective and deep, deep love that the two of you have. And again, that's the kind of example that gives us perspective and just honestly gratitude because yeah. there are not examples like you in the world for us. You're it. You're the one. Mm-hmm. And to see if that's possible not just do but to transcend mm-hmm. um, that makes me happy. That makes me feel I to do this. Yeah, to not just
3: survive but to thrive. Right?
2: Yeah. We know that the emotion well.
1: Yeah.
3: Okay. So you are obviously, as we just said to us, so loved, and you're so loved in the ALS community. Um, Team Gleason has made an enormous impact on the everyday lives of people with ALS um, and their families. Team Gleason made a huge impact in our lives in February when you guys sent us to the Super Bowl, and it was
1: one of the most
3: incredible experiences we've had as a family. It was amazing. Everyone was just so happy and It was just really joyous, really awesome, awesome time. So we're so grateful to that for that. When you started Team Gleason and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the the goal was to help people with this disease stay as independent as they could for as long as they possibly could Um, and also to have all these amazing adventures so long as they could, because obviously you you love adventure. Um, That focus was, you know, perhaps in part because at that point, channeling efforts into funding research or science toward viable treatments for ALS maybe just didn't seem promising or at least impactful in the immediate sense. That was more than a decade ago that you started Team Gleason. And I wonder how you've seen the ALS landscape change since then.
2: In the months after I was diagnosed, I was searching and scratching desperately to find some type of solution. If there was absolutely any hint of a possibility that I could figure out how to live a meaningful life despite my ALS diagnosis, I wanted to do everything I could do to discover a way to make it happen. The answer came in the form of technology. Since Lou Gehrig's death, there has been no effective medical therapy available for ALS patients. On the other hand, during the same time period, technological advancements for ALS patients have been, like the technology industry, exponential. In the sense, while there is no medical cure for ALS, technology can act as a cure. Stated another way, most of what ALS takes away, technology can give back. Mm-hmm. While the ALS landscape has changed dramatically over the last decade, our requests for equipment, technology, and adventures have increased by 60% in the last year alone. Hmm. And our sister organization, Answer ALS, is building the largest ALS data resource in history. More trials are being proposed, and patients are mobilized like never before but people still need the tools to live productive and purposeful lives until a viable treatment is available. I say all of this, Kelsey, to tell you that while there are no real effective treatments for this disease, I'm not an either-or
1: type of person. Mm-hmm. I'm an end type of person.
2: I like to help people and find treatments. The two foundations that we have created do just that. Team Gleason helps other people and families live productive and flourishing lives. And answer ALS helps researchers find treatments and the cure.
3: Yeah, I, I think that one of the one of the many ways that we're grateful for you is that because of the way that you can live with technology when we talk really honestly with our kids about ALS, we can say, see, look at Steve. Steve is still a dad to his kids. He still goes to all their baseball games. He can still talk with them. And that the most important thing is that we just keep dad here. And look, if Steve can do it, we can do that. We can do that
1: hard thing too. And your your foundation and mission, this is so important because this disease, 81 years until the mayor died, is not only not yet cured or significantly slowed, but the pathway to technological solutions to any hint of what manage manages better is still largely patient-expressed, um, patient-communicated, patient-led. We get so many phone calls because we have a small profile asking, What do I do? And so we recommend speech recording through teen gleason. We recommend a number of things. And the reality is, patients don't know where to go for centralized answers about treatment and coping mechanisms. And you've created really the greatest and largest example of that. And the gratitude expressed to us is significant and would do so little. And so the gratitude expressed to you must be anonymous enormous and more part of that gratitude. Oh, yeah, definitely.
2: That means a lot more from you. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: So, Steve, your side reverse and my son Colin, I'm both 10 years old. I found this to be a transitional age out of be a little kid to thoughts and emotions That are significantly more mature, as well as to being more protective of me. Mm -hmm. I have to think that your relationship with Rivers is as important as anything you have, because you got sick and Rivers is coming into the world. And I want your single minded, want to live, and think early on wants to be the dad to still be that dad who you wanted to be. I'm very curious about how Rivers, as he's got older, relates to you, talks to you with you.
2: This is a wonderful question, Chris. I'd say that being a father or a parent is our most important job, especially in the 21st century, with all the changes and the chaos of human existence, digital technology, and exposure to an infinite amount of information available 24-7, has created an accelerating path of exponential changes for humanity. While this path has created amazing, mind-blowing solutions, like the technology I use to live with ALS. Without this technology, I would be dead. Simple as that. It would seem like the treatment trial that you in is a similar solution with a familial disease that killed many of your predecessors, your past year predicted expiration date. Not only that, you're the assistant general manager for an NHL playoff team, Dude, I mean, how cool is this?
1: So cool. So cool.
2: We're both alive, Chris, because of the miraculous technology of our time. None of this is possible 50 or 60 years ago. But while we are flourishing because of this digital technology, many people, in fact, millions of people, especially young people, are experiencing loneliness, anxiety and suffering from the same type of technology. Mm-hmm. Rivers and Cone are coming into their 13 years. They arrive in the bullseye of these 21st century changes Rivers and Cohen will need exposure to tools and skills so they can develop and navigate through this life and, rather than experience loneliness or choose to suffer, they can live resiliently in freedom and peace in the midst of chaos and change. I see this as my job as a father to Rivers and Gray, as a dad who can't move or talk over the past few years. I've evolved my approach to fatherhood. Rather than be a disciplinary teacher dad, I work to experience life with Rivers. I call him brother quite a bit, and I tell him that he is ultimately in charge of his life and decisions. I'm here to be an example and give him guidance and love him as unconditionally as possible. I think this approach has really allowed our relationship to expand. I miss the market times, but I'm improving. Rivers is pretty open with me. The dude is a deep thinker and pretty philosophical, at least for a 10-year-old. Since I'm not able to move or quickly respond to him, some of our greatest moments are watching great movies or listening to audiobooks. We read great mythology. We just finished reading. And watching the entire Harry Potter series, which Michelle, Rivers, and I all love so much. This week, Rivers and I started watching the Matrix series after we watch. And sometimes during the movie, I'll pause the movie and ask questions that can help him grow stronger mentally and spiritually. This is how I'm working to teach resilience and love. We also do meditation practice sessions a few times each week. Bottom line, Chris, I'm working to guide rivers, be an excellent example of philosophical power, and to have a resilient mind, rather than focus on things like athletic, academic achievement, or success. Real success, in my view, is the ability to accept. And be happy in absolutely any circumstance life brings us. That is what I focus on living and guiding rivers to learn. My primary effort in life right now is to be a model of love, kindness, and gratitude for rivers, Gray, Gray, and Michelle.
1: Sometimes in our house, often actually, Kelsey will stop me because I'm trying to get Colin to a finished product stage yeah. in each attempt. And I'm sure I do that on a fear that I might not be there to protect. to. And your example is so authentic and powerful and perfect. And I know that you struggle. I know that at times, as you said, I just want to give them a proper fucking hug. Mm-hmm. And you can't. But the time that you had to think and to approach things with that thought, that love, that perspective, is so much more powerful than the rest of us just flailing, undoing.
3: Yeah.
1: But I don't know not that River's experience is better because of your disease. I know you wish you a play catch with him, throw a football on him, and I cannot imagine that pain. But that pride that he has in you and the potential that this will show for you, is going to be such an expression of the success that you've had as a dad. And the same thing and go for gray because I can tell that I think at least the Drew is Drew looks like Michelle. Since Michelle's build is a sensitive little guy, I think that gray has all the spirit <laughs> and fire and physical strength that you had. <laughs> and I'm so glad for you and she doesn't have jurors, but she great gray as well. Yeah, that was beautiful. <laughs> I have nothing to add insightful. <laughs> When Steve's are to talk to, because there are two kinds of conversations. One is when it's like a ping pong match. I'm not good those. When there's a captive audience that wants to hear the answer and Steve is highly captive, <laughs> then I could talk.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so thank you, Steve, for interrupting. <laughs>
2: You're right. I think that ultimately, Rivers will be much more luminous because of this life.
1: Mm-hmm. See I think often about how painstakingly long a day in your life must be. And with that, the thoughts and emotions then must pass through you on a given day. So in a day in the life of Steve Gleason, in what moments or settings or states of mind do you feel most hopeless or most challenged mentally? And inversely, when are you most at peace and when do you feel the lightest?
2: I appreciate your question, Chris. We're living in an impossible circumstance, and I definitely have moments of frustration and pain. I'd say that the majority of these times are when I want to communicate quickly with our family, but I'd say these moments are pretty few and far between. Mm -hmm. I practice gratitude, and probably more radically, I practice equanimity which is a combination of poise plus patience and ultimately peace in the midst of chaos. As I've mentioned throughout this wonderful podcast, I aim to welcome adversity as my opportunity to grow and expand myself. In this path, failure can be avenues to success. My ego identity, at times, fears that I'm not a good enough father or that I'm not loved Because I'm not able to do the things an ordinary father can do. But I know that I'm not here being human, to be loved. I'm here to love others. Dude, I'm alive, and you're alive. In this moment of life, the only life that we know we have, let's move through painful or frustrating moments in a healthy way and love our life and other people. As I have told you, brother, our
1: presence is enough. You did say that recently in a text, and I relate to a far less degree, but I entirely to the frustration of wanting to insert yourself instantly in conversation. Because I know how social you were and so are, but how much you enjoyed expressing yourself outwardly. And in those instances, when there's a chance to tell a joke, and I can't get it off fast enough. When the a conversation at work, and it's loud, and I know that the right choice is to just let it go and choose the next opening. Those are moments of realizing and to accept over again the loss because that is a huge part of this disease is realizing time again what you can't do. Mm. And the next challenge that's even greater is to accept that. And our presence is enough. Is a line that runs through my head frequently since you said it. Because it's true. Our kids, are our families, our colleagues, our friends, they just want us here. And the judgment that they pass on us, the loss that they see in us is always less than what we see ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the challenge is to try to get to their level, to not see them dwell on and resent the loss, but to realize what I still have. Mm-hmm. And that's what with you. I look at myself and I see the mostly healthy, strong, and you know, significant terms of body mass, body I've always had. And you've helped me considerably to see what I have instead of what I don't. Yeah.
3: Yeah, Chris has like had a hard time since everyone stopped wearing masks everywhere because with during COVID, he always had a mask on his face and it was when he was losing his facial muscles. And so he's really, I would say you've had a hard time mentally with people looking at your face all the time and how that's made you feel. And I always tell him like, Everyone, you know, back to your point of being past your expiration date. I always say, you look pretty good for a dead guy. <laughs> like everybody <laughs> expects you to be dead, <laughs> and you're still working. They expect you to be sick. They can't believe you're still driving your car. You know, all of those things. So, to to the point, we've always said, like the goal is just to keep you here. Like that's all we want. That's all you know. Rivers and Gray and Michelle want for you. That's all. Conan, Willa, and I want for Chris is we just want you here.
1: It's easy to hide. It's easy, currently, time in to lean in. And to own it, to own who I am. Mm-hmm. And it's true that during COVID, and I joke about this, handshakes went away, and masks came in. Yeah. It was perfect. <laughs> All my insecurities and issues were concealed. Mm-hmm. And so the last few months had to face those challenges. And I found that when thinking, sit and hide, is far worse. Mm-hmm. Throw that I let myself just lean in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Steve, you are an elite athlete, exceptionally fit, as fit as anyone any of us would ever know. You made your living and first made your name with your body. Mm-hmm. You hiked some of the world's greatest peaks and then you watch yourself physically weather to skin and bones. And you, I think, say, your meat sack of a body. I'm wondering. Because I struggle with this, and my losses are for this. How did you, and how do you, accept your physical self and the loss of identity, especially when your physical self was, I think, a significant part of the identity when you were younger?
2: Thanks, Chris. I see you as my brother in this journey, and our wonderfully crazy experience of life. I love you fiercely, mate. You asked me how I accept this loss of self. With ALS, the reality is, I had no fucking choice. (laughs) (laughs) I find that the language of this question is totally awesome. As you know, I like to explore language. Losing oneself is actually the aim, the bullseye, of all authentic meditation practice and spiritual philosophies. Since we have no fucking choice, ALS can actually help us let go of the illusion of self, the ego identity. So I'm happy you ask. If you're here being human, I'd say that acceptance of life's circumstances, abandoning the wants and cravings of the ego self, is essential to happiness. If you're not able to accept the reality of life in this moment, and every moment, It's going to be a long, exhausting journey. This is how we grow resilient and free. My success in football taught me that our power doesn't lie in our physical strength. It is the mind that holds the power. The reality in those moments was I was too small to be an NFL linebacker, and I had never played at safety on any level. This is where I really learned the power of acceptance. Over the first three years after my diagnosis, I lost nearly all my physical abilities. As a result of these physical changes, i had to be accepting in nearly every single aspect of my life. One of the first changes I encountered as my physical body began to decline was learning to accept and become comfortable with no longer being able to go running. Like so much in all our lives, this change, my loss of the ability to run was the bleak reality of what was going to happen. And I knew that the loss of the ability to run was just the beginning. Walking, talking, showering, wiping my ass. The losses would continue to mount. I became despondent and desperate. Living with such enormous and radical losses seemed pointless. I had to transform myself to be enormously and radically accepting. You see, not only did I love running, I was really good at it. I was so good that I made an entire career based on my ability to run. That was part of how I found meaning in my life. While I don't believe there is some divine or great cosmic meaning to human life on a relative and personal level. It's important to have a reason to get up each day. When I finally did lose my ability to run, I had to make a choice. I could either choose to be a victim, be bitter, resentful, and stubborn, or I could become accepting of reality, vulnerable, and resilient, and repurpose my life. I've had to choose the latter, over and over and over and over, to get to this point. Thanks again,
1: brother.
3: Great question. Hmm. Man, thank you. I can't, I can't really express what a gift it is to just be sitting here and talking to you. It's um, it's amazing. And I know we've already said this so many times and I've said this so many times in my podcast, just when I'm talking to other people, how grateful we are for your presence in our, in our family. And I can't tell you how many times I have found these little pictures and notes that our seven-year-old, Has drawn on a whiteboard or on a piece of paper, and how many times what she wrote with it is—it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be awesome. And the way that we use that in our family as um, a belief and a perspective that we all really lean um, on—you know—it's really immeasurable how uh, how much it means to us uh, because we can see how you live it and how you really it wasn't just something you said. Like you said that so long ago, right? Rivers was the little baby in the bassinet and you looked at him and you said that. And then you have lived it for the last decade. And it's amazing. And we love you. And we're so grateful for you.
1: Well Steve, we third month in person. This is our first face to face. And it struck me instantly it's how healthy you look. Your face, the color of your face, your dancing caterpillars for eyebrows. <laughs> your eye movement, your smile, you're expressive. And I'm so grateful to, for you to have that because I know that you're sitting here. I feel a connection. I feel a response. Despite, I'm sure, frustrations, even in the course of this, and not be able to say something that second. Mm-hmm. I can't thank you enough for being not just an example, but the example to myself, to tens of thousands like us, um, but especially to our kids and our families. Because you've shown that you can live an impossible life. Mm-hmm. And that's what our goal is. My goal is to get 461 injections of in my fine and literally 80 years old. And I believe I could do that. And that belief is greater, knowing that this treatment does not cause it. I think it could, that I could potentially live like you. But I could not do it without you. So thank you for that. Thank you for today. And I really look forward to the day that we sit in that room with you guys, lunch your table, and, and do this as families. Mm-hmm. Watch the boys have a catch on the lawn. Code really wants to use that budding cage, so don't <laughs> take that down that's still there.
2: <laughs> this is so valuable to me, Kelsey and Chris. I'm so thankful for our time together. It is thankful Thursday, baby. I love you so much, and I love your family. Thanks again. Be
1: well. Thank you, Steve. I love
0: you too. I wonder how many times I'll go back and listen to this conversation. So very many. I'll repeat what I said earlier. This conversation's a gift. It's also not the only gift Steve has shared and will share with the world. You heard him mention his book proposal. Steve's life-affirming memoir about disability and recovery, fatherhood and freedom, self-transformation, and the power of possibility is slated for release in 2024. If I could pre-order it now, I would. If you read my blog, you might remember a post I wrote quite a while ago about watching the documentary Gleason, which covered the first few years from Steve's diagnosis up until he underwent surgery for his tracheostomy. I highly recommend you watch Gleason. It's hard to watch, but it's worth it. Here's the thing doing this podcast and living this life has taught me. We can't turn away from the hard things. We should not turn away from the hard things. Grief and sadness sharpen and deepen our joy. We have to lean into all the emotions this life has to offer. I'm going to close out this episode by reading that post I wrote after I watched Gleason. September 13th, 2020. On Sadness. The house is quiet and dark. The window is open and the breeze is cool on my face. Summer is giving way to fall, and I pull the blanket up to my chin. These nights, when the air is crisp, have always been my favorite for sleeping. But this night, my mind is restless and it won't quiet. Willow wakes up and wants to cuddle. I squeeze her tiny body, take off my sweatshirt, and hand it to her. She wraps her arm around it and buries her face inside. I stop in Cohen's room and brush the hair from his face and kiss his forehead. And then I go back to bed. I climb under the covers, and I kiss Chris goodnight once more. He tells me he loves me, and quickly his breathing turns steady and rhythmic. I stare at the ceiling and listen to Chris snore softly, and think about being sad. I am sad. I have been sad for a long time now, but in the last few months my sadness has evolved. When Chris was first diagnosed, I was sad in a desperate, panicky way. The kind of sadness that takes your breath away and sends you spiraling into anxiety attacks. The kind you try to talk yourself out of the kind you still believe, might go away. Over time, that sadness quiets and settles into your bones until it's a part of you, just as much as the color of your eyes and the sound of your laugh. This, I have realized, is a sadness born of acceptance. When I was younger and had never experienced real trauma or loss, I remember listening to people describe how grief never goes away, how your sadness is always there. I remember feeling heartbroken over this notion of abiding sadness. But now I get it. My sadness is mine. It tells my story and holds my love and my fears and my hopes. In some strange way, I actually feel protective of it. It's a part of me. Now that sadness is my constant companion, it doesn't mean I don't throw my head back and laugh. It doesn't mean I don't play with my kids and love how the September breeze feels coming through the window at night. It just means that some days I cry in the shower. And some days everything I do and every experience I have just feels richer and fuller and more beautiful. Most days, it means both. I spent the summer feeling pretty shitty about my sadness. When Chris's smile changed, I felt like, okay, this is it. Now it's starting. The beginning of the end of my life as I knew it. Last year, I talked often to my friends about how when Chris kept going through all those precious, miraculous months with no progression, we were in a bubble, focused on the present and not worrying about what could be in the future. I worked hard to embrace that mindset, floating along in that bubble where I could let myself believe that ALS might never change our life any more than it already had. And then one day, Chris's smile was crooked, and my bubble burst, and I fell, hard and fast from the high I'd been living on. The bubble was gone, I told myself, for good. Never coming back, now the hard stuff was going to start. I've been in that space for a few months now. It's not a good place to be. It's full of wallowing and self-pity and anxiety and not showing up for today because you're too worried and sad about the future. Then, a couple nights ago, I finally watched Gleason, the award-winning documentary about former NFL player Steve Gleason and his wife Michelle and their first years after his ALS diagnosis. I want to pause here and say that if you want to be inspired by the strength and resolve of the human spirit, watch this movie. It's on Amazon Prime Video and a host of other streaming services. Steve and Michelle are incredible people. Last year, Steve was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal for all he has done to help the ALS community, and you will be better for the perspective they will give you. It took me months to get myself to watch it. I knew it would be hard, like looking into my own future. I sat on the couch next to Chris and cried for the entire 111 minutes, sometimes hard, sometimes silently, sometimes while simultaneously laughing. I watched Steve lose every aspect of his physical body, I listened to his speech turn from crisp and clear to slurred and hard to understand to completely gone. I watched his wife, with a newborn baby on her hip, feed her husband and suck the spit and snot from his nose and mouth so he wouldn't choke on it, and try to lift him up when he couldn't stand, and press as hard as she could on his chest to try to help him cough up mucus. I watched her cry. I saw the sadness in her eyes, the fear, the love, the acceptance, the exhaustion. I saw them become parents as Steve lost the ability to walk and talk and eventually breathe. I saw how quickly ALS ravaged Steve's physical self. I also saw them keep going and keep evolving and keep loving. And then I looked at Chris, his body still so unchanged, sitting next to me. I watched him stand up and turn off the television when the movie was over, walk to the fridge, drink a glass of water, brush his teeth, and climb into bed. I felt him put his arm around me and run his fingers through my hair. I listened to his voice comfort me while I cried. I felt him squeeze my hand and kiss my forehead. And I knew then, we are still in the bubble. Completely and totally in the bubble. How stupid of me to convince myself otherwise. How selfish, really, to wallow in my own sadness when he is here and doing everything he always could save for smiling and tying his shoes. Chris is 17 months removed from a type of ALS that has a 6-12 to month life expectancy. He's a miracle. He's a beacon of hope for the entire ALS community. No one ever before has had a better shot at beating this, or at least living with it rather than dying from it, than Chris has. This week was the 19th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and I spent some time thinking about the people who went to work that day and didn't come home, the ones who left messages to the people they loved, trying to find sufficient words to say goodbye. Yesterday, Chris's mom, Linda, should have turned 69 years old. I thought about everything she missed when she died of suicide that February day almost nine years ago, when her first grandchild was just six months old, and her second was months from being born. One day, she was here, and the next day, she just wasn't. And again, I am reminded how lucky I am. If someday I lose Chris to ALS, we will have spent our time in the present, planning and talking and understanding, grieving and accepting. We will have done it together, before we have to do it apart. Chris will have spent his final years, however many he ends up getting, writing his legacy in the profound way only someone who knows their time is limited can. We will have made so many mistakes along the way. We will have fought and been insensitive and still hurt each other. But we will have never stopped trying to be better and kinder and more present and more compassionate. I know that no matter how desperate things will have been at times, love will have always risen to the surface. When I think about my life in 10 years… I don't know if Chris will be by my side or not, but I do know I will be able to look back and say, that was so hard, but we worked so hard and we did our best. I know that this horrible disease will have served to make our lives more beautiful and more profound. I also know that in 10 years, in 20 years, my sadness will be there too. It will keep me company and sometimes hold me down and sometimes propel me forward and sometimes force me to sit in the quiet and feel all of it. It will be there. And I will be grateful for it, because my sadness will be how I know that I lived. In the words of Steve Gleason, recording himself as he watched his infant son Rivers wiggle around in his bassinet, It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be awesome. One more reminder that if you value this podcast and these conversations and want to support my work, you can go to www.patreon.com slash snow to become a member. For the monthly cost of one latte, you can help keep this work going, help keep it ad free, help it grow, and get access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. Thanks, as always, for listening.
1: The is never past, just rest.